Hello, and welcome to episode number nine of the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. Today's episode is all about Saudi Arabia. I can imagine that most of you have heard, of course, of the kingdom, of its role in international oil, its role as a slightly conservative Muslim kingdom, which sees itself very much as the heart and soul of the Islamic world, in large part because the faith was founded there before it was Saudi Arabia, when it was just Arabia, back in the early 7th century, and for the fact that the two holiest sites in Islam, Mecca and Medina, are both located on the western coast, near the Red Sea. Most of us in the West have come to see Saudi Arabia as an ally. No, they're not part of NATO, they're not part of any of the large alliances, but they're seen very much as a partner for the West, in large part because of the fact that they've been one of the world's key, in fact, swing producers of oil since the early 1970s. In fact, the relationship between the West and, more specifically, the United States and Saudi Arabia dates back to 1945, when President Franklin Roosevelt met with King Ibn Saud in February of that year aboard a U.S. Navy ship. And that meeting basically guaranteed U.S. access to Saudi oil for decades to come. Interestingly, uh, from an oil perspective, Saudi Arabia is in fact playing a bit of a lesser role when it comes to the health of the Western energy economy. At one point in the U.S., Saudi Arabia was responsible for providing one in five barrels of oil. And in recent years, due to fracking and a more of a diversification of oil supplies, it is down to at least uh, around one in ten barrels. At least that's what I read in the most recent edition of The Economist. The other thing that Saudi Arabia is known for is a very conservative brand of Islam, which many call Wahhabism, which is not really an accurate term, but and I'll explain why in a second. But Saudi Islam is seen as uh, very fundamentalist, very intolerant of other versions, and that's causing quite a bit of problems, not just within the Saudi Arabia itself, but actually around the world. Well, let's get back to whether or not Saudi Arabia is really a friend of the West. The platform or the position I will hold in this podcast is that I'm not sure that it is. Full disclosure, I've been to Saudi Arabia several times. I've met with Saudi authorities from the intelligence services. I thought that they were very good at what they did. And yet, even with, through my very brief exposure to Saudi society, as well as what I've read and what I've written in the past couple of years, this has all led me to the conclusion that we don't, we shouldn't necessarily see Saudi Arabia as an ally. And in fact, they're making the terrorism problem around the world much, much more complicated. So how do we get here? Well, let's look more in detail at the version of Islam that is practiced in Saudi Arabia. As I said, it is called Wahhabism. It is named eponymously for a man named Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, who lived from the early 18th to the late 18th centuries. He was a preacher in the northern Najd province of Saudi Arabia, a very austere place. 
And he advocated that Islam, as it was practiced in Arabia, again, this is before Saudi Arabia, he advocated a purge of a lot of practices that had become widespread within the faith, such as the veneration of saints and the visiting of tomb, tombs and shrines. And what Wahab wanted to do was what he felt was to bring Islam back to its core, back to its first principles. Anything that was different than that practiced by the founder of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad, as well as the first few generations of Muhammad, was seen as bidah. Bidah is an Arabic word that means innovation. And Wahhab didn't like anything that was new. He wanted to bring Islam back to first principles. And another term that's used to describe Wahhabism is Salafism. Salafism is from the Arabic word Salaf, which refers to the founder and the first few generations of Islam. This took an interesting turn in the mid-18th century when the one of the founders of the I guess the Saudi school, or the Saudi's family rather, hooked up with Wahhab, and the two of them made a, a pact of sorts in 1744. The pact meant that the Saud family, the Saud clan, would be responsible for temporal power within Saudi Arabia. Remember that at the time you had competing clans, competing families, it was quite a violent society, and the Sauds wanted to gain prominence like, over the other divisions within 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 uh, Arabia. And the other part of the pact was that the, the Wahhabis, uh, Ibn Wahhab and his followers, would be responsible for the spiritual aspect of life in, in the kingdom. And that pact, which I said dates from the middle of the 18th century, has been around for more than 250 years. With the help of Wahhab and his band of priests, if I can use that term, not a very accurate one, in Islam. The Saudi family took control of the entire peninsula and in fact made trouble for some of its neighbors, including up in Iraq, where they launched some battles, largely against Shia Muslims, and I'll come back to that in a second, so much so that it got the attention of the Ottoman Empire, which was the ruling caste within Islam from the mid-15th until the end of World War One. And they sent an armed force down the Red Sea to basically confront the Sauds and the Wahhabis and basically cast them aside for a little while, though they came back to power in the early 20th century. My point is, is that this marriage between al-Wahhab and the Saud family has been in place, as I said, for more than two and a half centuries, and it is still a very, very strong bond. One thing about Wahhabi Islam you have to understand, beyond its rejection of innovation, bidah, and its desire to take Islam back to the earliest centuries since its founding, was it has an intense hatred for certain aspects of Islam. And the two that really get the Wahhabi's goat are Sufis and Shias. Sufis, of course, practice a, spiritual is the wrong word, uh, a very outward kind of Islam, they embrace music, they embrace dancing, which the Wahhabis hate. But it's the Shia that the Wahhabis really, really can't stand. Many of the battles they fought along the Persian Gulf into Iraq in the early 19th century were in fact to kill Shia. As far as the Wahhabis are concerned, the Shias are apostates. They use the word murta, murtadin, which, which comes from the Arabic word ridda, which means apostasy, that which goes against the faith. And as far as Wahhabis are concerned, the only good Shiite is a dead Shiite. 
Well, why does this matter? A lot of the Islam that is practiced or proclaimed by terrorists, Islamist extremists, could easily be described, encapsulated as Wahhabi Islam. It's often called Salafi Jihadi Islam, but in many ways it's Wahhabi Islam. So Wahhabism is a, is a sort of a sub-school, if you will, of Salafism, which is a larger category. Of course, the preeminent terrorist of the 20th century, Osama bin Laden, was a Saudi. He was steeped in Wahhabi Islam, and he had an intense hatred for Sufi Shia, the West, pretty well everybody that didn't listen to him and, and how he wanted to have Islam practiced. So where does Saudi Arabia come into all this? Beginning with the oil crisis in the early 1970s, I remember when gas basically quadrupled almost overnight in those, those days. Saudi Arabia was suddenly flush with cash, and they wanted to use that cash to spread, in fact they did, spread their version of Islam around the world. They would build madrasas, which are Islamic schools, they would send preachers to the four corners of the earth, and these preachers in these schools would pass on, instruct Muslims in the tenets of this very austere, very conservative, very fundamentalist, very intolerant strain of Islam that we call Wahhabism. And because of the fact that the Saudis had so much money, they were able to do this on a grand scale. Let's just take one very, very small example. Indonesia. Indonesia is a really interesting country. It is, uh, it's the largest Islamic nation on earth, some 250 million people, of which at least 200 million are Muslims. Islam came to Southeast Asia along with uh, Arab traders throughout the centuries. And Saudi Arabia sent an awful lot of people there, beginning, in the, as I said, in the 1980s, to spread the version of faith. And in fact, I have an article here from National Interest that states, and I will quote, that there are bureaucrats steeped in austere Wahhabism who draw converts in government prayer halls. In fact, the Indonesian government, there was an election just in, in Indonesia recently in which Joko Widodo uh, was re-elected as president. There's a lot of concern in Indonesia about the transformation of a very tolerant, syncretic form of Islam in the country that drew from a lot of the former pagan, we call them pagan beliefs, and incorporated them is all being rejected by this Wahhabi strain. And it's causing problems for the Indonesian government. Jamaat Islamiyah, which is a terrorist group, an Islamist terrorist group in Indonesia, again practices a form of Islam that is very much in keeping with, with Wahhabism. And it's no secret or no surprise that Jamaat Islamiyah, as a terrorist group, was created in the aftermath of this program by the Saudis to spread their preaching and their preachers abroad. Another example would be what we, what we see in Sri Lanka. So of course we're now still dealing with the terrorist attacks from Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. A lot of articles have talked about the fact that Wahhabism is now rife in parts of the country. Again, uh, Sunni, uh, excuse me, Islam in Sri Lanka was largely Sufi in nature before the advent of these preachers and now we're seeing a growing intolerance and that intolerance is what was the faith that was held by the suicide bombers that carried out the attacks on Easter Sunday in churches and in hotels. Yes, Islamic State had a role to play. We're, we're learning more and more about training that took place in Syria where some of the Sri Lankans went to fight with, with the so-called Islamic State. But 
from a national perspective, we're also learning, learning more about that fact that Sri Lankan Islam is changing, and it's changing for the worse, thanks to Wahhabi Islam. So the Saudis have been responsible for this campaign for 30 to 40 years now. It has not been good. I don't think I can't think of anybody who thinks that the spread of this intolerant, hateful version of Islam has been a positive thing for us for Islam, for Muslims, and for non-Muslims worldwide. And then we get to the advent of Muhammad bin Salman, the, the son of the current king, and as many believe, he's the crown prince. He's the king in waiting. Very young man, uh, well-educated man, and he's seen by a lot of people as the, the so-called savior of Saudi Arabia. He's come up with an awful lot of programs that will bring the kingdom into the 21st century. It's about bloody time. And he has promised to increase rights for women. Women can drive now, whereas they couldn't drive before. Uh, women are allowed to go out with, with, without their minders, which they couldn't do before. Although an interesting article in The Guardian says that there are still... Uh, there's an app called AppShare, which apparently is a wife-tracking app, which male guardians can have to keep track of where their wives and daughters are. So has something, anything really changed in Saudi Arabia? Well, I don't think so, but we'll go on with this. The other thing, of course, that uh, MBS has talked a lot about is, cramp, is clamping down on these intolerant, hateful preachers. And he has said that he will prohibit them from spreading to the same extent they once did this very hateful strain of Islam. Bear in mind, this has been an alliance between a school of Islam and a particular family in the kingdom for 250 years. And he, in fact, has been challenging this to some extent. So a lot of people sort of see uh, MBS, as he's, been, as he's come to know, uh, as the great savior. He's going to be the one to make uh, all the difference. And a lot of people have lined up behind him. Remember a famous photograph of President Trump appearing with him in this technology center. Uh, MBS wants to build this new city of technology by, by 2030. He wants to change the kingdom fundamentally. But is he really? So we talked about women, how women all of a sudden have these, these, these great rights. Well, except if you're a woman who's an activist against the government. And there are credible allegations that women have been these activists who are protesting for more rights for women in the kingdom have been taken to what they call secret detention facilities. They allege they've been uh, they've been tortured, they've been waterboarded, they've been electrocuted, they've suffered sexual abuse, and lo and behold, it is a confidant of MBS, a man called Saud al Qatani, who in fact is the overseer of this torture program of Saudi women. So maybe everything in the kingdom isn't as people think it is. Secondly, most recently, there was a set of executions that took place in Saudi Arabia on the, on the East Coast. 37 men were executed on so-called terrorism-related charges. They were beheaded. Beheading is the capital punishment of choice in Saudi Arabia. I've been to what's called Chop Chop Square in Riyadh. Uh, the day I was there, there were no executions, thank God. But I did notice that, in fact, the ground where the executions are carried out is slightly slanted. So the blood can drain after it's washed off into gutters on around the side. 
in a creepy kind of way. The most recent executions were carried out. Uh, one man, after, after he was executed, was actually crucified. He was strung up on a, on a pole. I find it hard to believe we're talking about executions in 2019. But here's the kicker. Every single, or most of the men who were, who were executed on alleged terrorism charges were, guess what? Shias. The eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia that board on the, on the Persian Gulf have a large Shia population in them. And they've been rather restive for quite some time. The Saudi government has been carried out a campaign of violence against these provinces to prevent them from, I guess, asserting their authority or quasi-independence. But to me, it's, it's no surprise that the fact that they are Shia dominant is the reason why the Saudis are going there and carrying out these, these programs. Are they really terrorists? Are they not? It's really hard to say. We only have the Saudi word for it. And I can think of this scene from A Handmaid's Tale, the movie that, um, based on the novel by Canadian author Margaret Atwood, where a man is killed uh, by women. He's beaten to death. And they tell a woman he's some kind of a large criminal, when in fact he's probably just an, an average Joe. So how many of these 37 were just average Joes, or maybe better put average Mohammeds? I have no idea. But I find it a coincidence that in fact they were all Shia. The number one thing that for me indicates that maybe Saudi Arabia is not an ally of the West, is not on our side, is of course the execution of Jamal Khashoggi, who was a Saudi dissident. He was a journalist who had spent quite some time in Saudi Arabia uh, as an ally of the Saudi family for the longest time, changed his mind, moved to the States, where he wrote some articles very critical of the Saudi regime. At one point, he ended up back in Turkey. He was at the Saudi consulate to gain some documentation to uh, be able to marry his, his fiance. He entered the consulate. His fiance waited for him outside, and she waited, and she waited, and she waited, and her fiance never came out. We all know now that Jamal Khashoggi was in fact murdered within the consulate. The Saudis denied this for days. Their stories kept changing. They first said he left the consulate, and then when no one believed them on that story, they said, well, he didn't leave, and there was a fight that he started, and things went badly wrong. It turns out Saudi Arabia has sent an execution team to Turkey. That's been well documented in the media. And they killed the dissident, Jamal Khashoggi. They didn't just kill him. After he was dead, they dismembered him and disposed of his remains. His fiance never got the body back, obviously, and nor will anybody see what, what truly happened to Jamal Khashoggi. To me, I think this is the number one thing that points to the fact that Saudi Arabia really hasn't changed all that much. A lot of what's happened in terms of the so-called clampdown on Wahhabi preaching, the so-called liberation of women's rights, driving, and things like that, this is window dressing that hides a much more, a much deeper and a much more frightening and worrisome trend that's been there for, for going on 300 years now. It's no coincidence that MBS has acquired a nickname for himself. Instead of being Mohammed bin Salman, it's now Mr. Bonesaw, reference to the fact that many believe that he was the one that gave the initial order to send the execution teams to Istanbul to kill Mr. Khashoggi in the consulate. I can't prove that. Maybe nobody can prove that. But it seems to me that if the crown prince wants you dead, 
the crown prince wants you dead and now mr Khashoggi has unfortunately had the demise the, the, the gruesome demise that he suffered so where does this leave us leave us with saudi arabia well clearly the americans are still an ally donald trump is in love with it with with the crown prince he'll say nothing wrong against saudi arabia despite the fact the kingdom has built the american public for oil high oil prices for 40 or 50 years now I wonder what's going to happen when Saudi oil is, is not as important anymore. They can still produce it for pennies on the barrel or a few dollars on the barrel. But what happens when oil loses its luster, if it ever does? What happens if we go for more renewable sources like solar, like wind, like electric power that's not based on carbon fuels? Will Saudi Arabia, in fact, become an outlier? It plays the game well, though. It sucks up to the Americans. It constantly talks about Iran, and we all know that... Uh, Donald Trump has Iran on the brain. He sees Iran as the greatest threat to the, in the history of the planet, which is not entirely true. Iran has uh, many things against it, and it clearly is not a helpful state when it comes to sponsorship of terrorism. Groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in the, in the occupied territories. But when it comes to terrorism, there's no question, at least in my mind, and I believe many experts share my views on this, that it's Sunni Islamist terrorism that's the problem, not Shia Islamist terrorism. And who's responsible in large part for Sunni Islamist terrorism? Saudi Arabia. They always have been. They always will be. We even see their influence now in Libya. If you've been following the news now, there's a been a war between the General Haftar and the General National Accord, which is the kind of government that replaced Gaddafi when he was killed. But now we see a Saudi-trained group called the Marhalis, the Marhali Salafis, this is from the International Crisis Group report. The Marhadi Salafis, followers of an ultra-conservative Sunni Muslim doctrine originating in Saudi Arabia, have gained great influence across Libya, including in key armed groups and religious institutions. Now, what does that sound like? One more effort, one more successful effort by a Saudi-derived faith to in infiltrate religious institutions and to gain influence and spread more hateful rhetoric again from the international crisis group from civil society advocates to sufi to religious minorities many are alarmed by the madhali's clout intolerant actions and anti-democratic agenda indonesia libya sri lanka we're now seeing more saudi influence in parts of central africa you can bet the mortgage that that influence will be accompanied by religious influence. I, I don't believe the Saudis are, are sincere in their attempts to crack down on Wahhabi preaching to try to limit its influence. You know, and even if all this were, were on the up and up, even if this really was a, a, a valid, legitimate, heartfelt attempt by the Saudis, we still can't get away from the fact that they spread their toxic version of Islam for four decades there are hundreds of thousands if not millions or maybe tens of millions of people who've been exposed to this hateful version of Islam Salafi jihadism as I mentioned is largely the same as Wahhabi Islamism the two share many characteristics hatred of Shia, hatred of Sunnis hatred of anything new intolerance for difference, hatred for the West hatred for Christians, hatred for Jews the list goes on and on and on and on. And we have a lot of this to lay at the feet of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. 
So as I said, even if the changes are real, we're going to have to wait generations before this population that has had this Islam drilled into them until they die out or somehow embrace a more tolerant version of Islam. Bottom line is, I've never trusted the kingdom. I don't think that they really are acting in our best interests or acting in their own best interests. And those own best interests are the marriage between Wahhabi Islam and the Al Saud family. I don't see that changing anytime soon. So I think that when we here in the West develop a list of who we think are our allies in the region, and I'm not saying we should embrace Iran tomorrow for the reasons I already cited, but I do think we should have a sober second thought before we gravitate in a knee-jerk reaction to Saudi Arabia, the government of Saudi Arabia, the, the king, the royal family, Mr. Bonesaw, etc., etc. I'm not convinced that Saudi is really our friend. You may disagree with me, in which case I'd love to hear from you. That's it for podcast number nine of An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. As usual, you can leave comments on the YouTube version of this podcast. There are other platforms that I'll put out in one of my blogs where you can find this. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can comment on Twitter at borealisaves or reach me on LinkedIn or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback, please pass it on to me. Until next time, stay safe.